Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And this is an episode in the Princeton University Press podcast, Ideas podcast. And today I'm very happy to say that we have Skyler Tibbetts on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, Things Fall Together, A Guide to the New Materials Revolution. It's out from Princeton University Press in just a couple days, June 15th, I think. Skyler, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much. Pleasure to talk. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm a faculty at MIT Department of Architecture and uh, co-direct the Self-Assembly Lab. And I have a background in architecture and then went to MIT and did degrees in computer science and design computation. So I sort of got into all of this world coming from an art and architecture space and then got into computing and robotics and fabrication, and that then led to materials. That's cool. That's really cool. Can you talk a little bit about the self-assembly lab? Yeah, sure. So it's a research lab, um, and we're you know mostly focused on inventing new material properties, new fabrication systems, trying to rethink the way that we design, fabricate, and interact with products or our built environment. Um, and so, you know, we do a lot of different research in, in different areas. Mostly this length scale that we work on is from like, you know, millimeter, centimeter up to many meters, like pretty macro scale stuff. Um, and, you know, we work with different industry partners and a lot of different projects, everything from like footwear to clothing to cars and planes and buildings all the way up to now like islands and landscapes. So there's, you know, a lot of different research, but all about how simple materials can be activated with forces from their environment and have new behaviors, new capabilities. That sounds very cool. I'd like to watch you work. (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask you this question. Why did you write this book and what did you hope to accomplish with it? Yeah, probably for two reasons I was interested in writing this book. Um, The first being that, you know, over the past decade or so, uh, there's been an inundation of like, quote unquote, smart things. So you can think about like a smart house or a smart car or a smart shoe or a smart whatever. And, you know, we increasingly see that as meaning robots, So like a smart house means buy more Nest thermostats, you know, or Nike did the self-lacing shoes. So now you got to like plug in your shoes at night or there'll be like smart jackets or smart cars or whatever. And they're always this link to robotics. And that was just a really strange relationship that smart now means robot. Um, And so I was interested in challenging that notion and and trying to set a different vision for the future of what quote unquote smart things are. You know, before we had robots, everything that was smart was material. Everything that was smart was living or biological or chemical. And these were, you know, simple materials that had agency and could respond to their environment, could make decisions and sense and react. And so through our work and many of our colleagues in this space, I've grown to realize that there's a a completely different perspective on what it means to be smart. And that's through the lens of materials, not through the lens of electromechanical devices. And if we can get there, that means we can 
eliminate or reduce our reliance on uh, like heavy fossil fuels and batteries and motors and parts and complexity, which increases cost and often increases failure. So, you know, it's this realization of, of where a lot of these industries were going. And I wanted to show a different perspective of, of what smart products and smart environments can be in the future. And really, it's just bringing them back to being simple, being really fundamental, simple materials. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the reasons. And then the second was just that, you know, over the years at the at the self-assembly lab, we've done lots of different projects and kind of have um, fallen into these really fascinating, strange principles that we use all the time that are not obvious to most people. You know, if you just think about the process of self-assembly or self-organization, that's not really an intuitive thing unless you're a biologist. You know, if you're a kid or you're at home and you want to build something, you don't just like take a bunch of Legos and throw them in a washing machine. <laughs> you know? Like you, you build them like piece by piece. You have an idea, a top down vision of what's possible, and then you build them and you force things together. But in, you know, much of the biological and chemical world, or even like think of planetary scales, that doesn't happen. Things come together on their own. And so there's a bunch of these really surprising principles that we've come to learn and love and work with every day that most people don't think about. And so I wanted to be able to articulate those fundamental principles for how this stuff works. Um, With regards to your first point about smart devices, when I was reading the book, I was reminded of the most hated smart device in the world, and that is the smoke detector. Because <laughs> from, in my opinion, from a design standpoint, these things are very badly designed because people disable them. <laughs> I, I don't know why you would build a so-called smart device that requires or moves people to disable it. <laughs> Um, so you guys can you work on that at the assembly lab yeah we'll get right on that (laughs) you know in all honesty like i think that's what happens to a lot of our smart devices is that they are not really smart you know we're always thinking about if the smart thing costs more or the smart thing fails more often or the smart thing is way more annoying and forces me to turn it off smart actually i might as well go with the dumb thing and be you know safer or better or cheaper or whatever yeah no that's right but i was thinking actually i mean the smoke alarm has an oral aspect to it it wakes you up in your sleep but if you could design a kind of paint a ceiling paint that turned a color when it detected radon or something in the room then well that would do it it would be a material that solved that problem yeah and you know under the hood like the thermostat, for example, is, is a classic one. Um, and the the old school thermostat is brilliant um, in the sense that it's a, a simple bi-metal strip inside that uh, is a coil and it expands or contracts with very subtle temperature changes. And that's what basically tells you what temperature you're at. Um, and you can adjust the dial. And th- this coil is you know, go- going to outlive all of us. <laughs> and it doesn't take any electricity to run this simple bimetal strip. It's just morphing yeah. based on the material properties. And you'll see that all over the place. That's in braces. That's in 
uh, stents and medical devices. It's in car engines and, you know, in your home. There's lots of these examples that are just like brilliantly designed around material properties. Uh, But we sort of ignore all of those and go to the like, spend lots of money in motors and make it smart with a bunch of robots. So could you tell us what the phrase programming materials means? Yeah. So that um, emerged, as I was saying before, and, you know, my background from computer science meets architecture in a way, it's like, what do we mean by embedding information into something? Um, And how do you program something? How do you embed a program into it? And that could be as fundamental as like DNA. DNA has a sequence of ACTG and those are essentially the code. Um, And that encodes everything about construction and behavior and, you know, all of the fundamentals in biology. Um, And the same thing goes for a computer program, you know, that we are essentially embedding information uh, into this system that then has logic and can have instructions and can have, you know, conditional statements and loops and objects and classes and all these different things. And so the question was, how do you embed information into materials? And even more than that, how do you embed more sophisticated programs into materials that then give those materials agency? And those materials could just be a simple like sensor and actuator. So if this happens, do that. Uh, or it could be you know, more sophisticated programs where it has you know multiple inputs and multiple outputs and could make more sophisticated decisions. So it's essentially trying to um, design and fabricate and work with those materials in order to create more agency in them. So it, mm-hmm. it's a little bit misleading in the sense that we don't mean program in the in the more contemporary notion of program, like program with electronics and program with a computer. We mean it more in the fundamental way that if you went far before that, you would get to mechanical computers or you would get to, you know, things like an abacus, you know, or you would get to like really fundamental things like think of smoke signals. Um, That's a really interesting way to transfer information and communicate between two points that isn't about, you know, electrons and zeros and ones. And so we're trying to figure out the same way. And, and, you know, your example of the wood earlier is a a beautiful example of that wood grain encodes the ability to sense and react so that the pattern of that grain is essentially like, you know, zeros and ones or dashes and dots or ACTs and G's that that's a pattern that when moisture is around, is going to dictate how that wood behaves, how it senses and reacts. If you change that pattern of the grain, you get a completely different behavior. It's literally the same as a computer program, and it's embedded directly in the piece of wood. I'm sure my contractor, Gary, knows that. (laughs) 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 He just doesn't know he knows it. Yeah. And this is what you call active matter, right, in the book. Yeah. And the fundamental question is, how do you create that pattern? You know, wood naturally that that emerges and same in the case of DNA, although now there's, you know, more contemporary examples of creating custom sequences of DNA and, and some of our research, we've created custom wood patterns, et cetera. But that's the question is how do we create unique 
arbitrary patterns that mean something, you know, that the wood can transform into a precise shape that it never would have done before. So we tap into the properties of the wood in order to make it literally active. And so when we say program, we literally mean designing some pattern, some sequence and behavior that we can embed in these materials. And then we want them to become active. And so we, we are trying to make materials active. And, and that's why we talk about it as active matter. Um, and I think about that as a you know, much broader category of literally any material system that's active, that could be sensing and transforming, sh- changing shape, changing property, assembling itself. We want these uh, material systems to, to become active and lifelike in a way. You know, most of our human built world tends to be quite static uh, and kind of cold and dumb and just sits there where <laughs> the rest of the the human and and biological and chemical world tends to be really really active you know think about humans growing and morphing and moving and dancing think about plants and animals and even think about weather and you know non-human things is really dynamic and so it's it's interesting that most of our human things tend to be quite static this is a bit of an aside but i think it's important because it's important to everything you say in the book. And what I mean is the idea or the fact of entropy. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about entropy and explain what negative entropy is? Yeah. I mean, the, the average perspective on entropy that, that most people will hear about is, you know, things fall apart, um, that everything good in life comes to an end and, and, both, most things go from order to disorder. That's the kind of like average person's understanding, which is not totally true. And, um, you know, not scientifically what we would describe as entropy, but we often see that happening. And, and so some people will say life is essentially reverse entropy, that all of life is going against that. It's building order from disorder. And as we you know, live and grow, we're essentially fighting that um, and, you know, building more and more order. And often the things that we make, we, you know, add energy and we then put things together and and build structures. Um, But the way that I kind of shift the definition away, in a way, is to um, say, maybe it's more about moving towards a more comfortable state. Um, and so, you know, the, often the most comfortable state or the easiest thing to do is for things to go towards disorder or to, for things to fall apart. It, it's pretty easy for things to fall apart, but if you can create the right conditions, things could potentially just as easily come together as fall Mm. apart. It, it's less common, but it is possible that things can create order. And so really the goal is that we're designing these systems that have just the right environment, just the right ingredients in order to build order from disorder. That's very well stated. I I get it now completely. Could you tell us what self-assembly is? Yeah. So self-assembly is the process where uh, disordered parts build ordered structures without humans or machines. So the principles of self-assembly is how humans are built from, you know, disordered 
uh, biological material that then comes together to build all of the functionality and design and intelligence that we have as humans. But the same goes for almost everything that's not man-made. So you can look at cooking uh, and baking and brewing beer and all sorts of interesting things. You could look at gardening. You can look at planets. You know, there's no like big 3D printers printing out planets. There's no one saying like, I'm going to design a planet like this and I'm going to build a machine <laughs> to make this planet. And, and the same thing for DNA. There's no like little sledgehammers and screwdrivers, you know, assembling this precise DNA thing to make a human. All of these things are designed and built from the bottom up that they self-organize and self-assemble into this final structure that has functionality, it has hierarchies and complexity and behaviors and intelligence. And so the question is, why don't we use that in our human-built world? You know, almost every, everything that we build as humans, with, with a few exceptions, are designed by some, you know, genius designers, architects, engineers, and then instructions are sent to humans or robots to build it part by part. So everything in that process is top down, whereas almost everything in the natural world is built and designed from the bottom up. And so that's the question we're really interested in is can we tap into this phenomenon and, and use it for human uh, design, construction, fabrication, et cetera? You give a great example of this in the book, and that is the self-assembling table. Can you tell <laughs> us about that? Yeah, we've done a couple of furniture pieces. We did a table and we've done a chair. Um, you know, the the simple example that almost everyone asks me is like, oh, do you mean Ikea? Is that what you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and, and we really don't mean that. Um, it's funny because that's also like literally like you're the self and you're assembling. Uh, but that's not what we mean by self-assembly. You could say like the future of Ikea would be that the furniture. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> exactly. If you perfect <laughs> that, the people at Ikea are going to be on the phone in about three seconds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that in the, if you think about it from the, the future perspective, yes, that is what we are talking about, that the product, whether that's furniture or something else, should be able to self-assemble, to build itself. Um, and that seems crazy, but there's lots of examples demonstrating that's possible. And then in our in our lab, um, and there's various other research out, researchers out there that have demonstrated this kind of process, all the way from the smallest of scales to the you know largest of scales. We've done it with you know meter diameter weather balloons, building meter scale structures, and we're now studying uh, wave and sediment transport to self-organize islands. And then in the one you talked about, we did uh, a chair that all the components of the chair are unique. So they're not you know self-similar parts and they tumble underwater and then come together to build this, you know, arbitrarily designed chair um, that, you know, it's not like this, the chair is found in nature and this is like a fundamental shape that can only self-assemble. We can do arbitrary designs and they come together. The, the table um, is a different version of that, which is that it should go from flat to 3D. So often, you know, product, one of the challenges is how do you ship it around the world and you want to minimize the volume, the air that you're shipping in the package. So IKEA has perfected the flat pack 
Um, but it then takes a lot of assembly. So a bunch of our work has looked at how do you ship things flat and then with some minimal input, get it to transform into 3D. Um, and so the table was that. Can it ship flat and then jump into a three-dimensional table? And the chair was separate parts that come together underwater in order to assemble this precise chair. That's very cool. <laughs> it's just very cool. And I hope you perfect it because uh, I imagine the people at Ikea would want to do business with you. Um, <laughs> a lot of frustration. Of, yeah. Of furniture, yeah. yeah. There's a sentence in the book that intrigued me and I'll quote it. Robots do not always need robotic mechanisms to function. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? Yeah. In the, um, the world of robotics, you know, when I was a grad student, I was working with Neil Gershenfeld's lab, the Center for Bits and Atoms, under a DARPA grant called Programmable Matter. And at that time, you know, there was lots of researchers under that grant doing what they called programmable matter, which meant robots. And, um, you know, we thought about it in the classic term of like programming electronics and motors and mechanisms to do things, to move, crawl, swim, squirm, go from one thing to another. Um, But since that time, so about a decade later, almost all of those researchers have moved towards soft things, materials that behave like robots, but aren't built with the electromechanical mechanisms and clunky gears and mechanisms and, you know, massive parts that you would typically think of. Um, so most of the that field has shifted towards soft robotics. And so there's now like this booming space of soft robotics. And that is often like soft, squishy, gooey material things that can sense and react and transform and do all of the fundamental things that robots can do, but they don't have the traditional parts of robots. And so what I'm trying to argue there is that, you know, it's a similar space that we started out with that, you know, most of the time we want a quote unquote robot because we want it to have some function. We want it to have some behavior. We want it to sense or transform or move or walk or curl. Um, We want to have something that's smarter. And we agree with that. But the way that we achieve that doesn't need to be uh, constrained by our conventional notion of robotics with electronics and sensors and motors and electromechanical systems. And so we can demonstrate all those behaviors with simple materials. I'm reminded that we just bought a Venus flytrap. And the purpose is to get rid of flies. And it is a little robot that does this. <laughs> it really does. I was amazed that it worked, but it does. It has some sort of fly crack that it gets the flies to go in the little jaws of the Venus flytrap and then it closes much faster than you thought a plant could ever do anything. <laughs> I highly recommend this to the listeners because it is mind boggling. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah and there's what, a lot of examples where a traditional robot might make sense. Um, but most of the ones that we come across could move towards the Venus flytrap version. The simple material version would be much better. You know, you don't really want a bunch of batteries and motors in your shirts and shoes, you know? No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> you really don't. I can't tell you the number of people who have said my Fitbit broke 
<laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I totally get that. Um, let's move on to 4D printing. We live in three dimensions, not counting time. What is 4D printing? Yeah, it's exactly the element of time that, that you mentioned. Um, and actually, this came after the robots that I was working on under that DARPA grant. You know, there was a bit of a frustration that, you know, we're spending thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of dollars building these really complicated robots. Um, and in my case, coming from an architecture world, I was building large scale robots. But if you think about how that scales up, you don't really want to be building architectural buildings that are robots. You know, you don't want every brick to be a robot because it's going to be too expensive, too energy intensive, too failure prone, too complicated to assemble. So it doesn't really scale to make buildings out of robots. Um, but you do want all that behavior and the functionality and, and intelligence in it. So we were then thinking about, well, how do we make these quote unquote robots um, without the traditional robotic mechanisms. And so that's where we landed on this idea of, you know, there's this emergence of 3D printing. What if we could 3D print things that transform over time? And so that's why we called it 4D because we added the element of time that mm -hmm. wasn't just about printing static things. It wasn't just like, let's print some tchotchkes on your desk, <laughs> paperweights, but we were printing essentially robots. We were printing active things, materials that could transform and they could morph and adapt and, and change over time. And so that's why we called it 4D printing. And in the beginning, it was all based on multi-material printing. You have different materials. You print them out with very specific geometries in two and three dimensions and then based on the environment, in, in the very beginning, it was all based on moisture. If you change the moisture or you dip it underwater, it morphs from one shape to another. And we did all sorts of things like 1D structures that fold into 2D or 2D things that fold into 3D or folding, curling, shrinking, you know, all sorts of different geometries and mechanisms. We even did like protein strands, you know, macro scale versions that could morph. Um and then that led to lots of other materials and research over over many years about how do we do this outside of just printing? Can we do it with knitting and weaving and extrusion and lamination? And can we do it with wood and metal and plastic and foam and you know lots of different materials? But the 4D printing work was the very beginning of it that led to this sort of aha moment that it's totally possible to produce these smart, quote unquote, robots with just materials. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, I have a question here that's about smart well wearables, but I'm not going to ask it because I think we've beaten smart wearables to death. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how do you build, quote, from the bottom up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is um, what we were talking about with our self-assembly and self-organization work, that there's a couple different ingredients. So we need to be able to design the components with specific interactions so how does one part come together to another part? And can you um, encode some type of logic in that? So, you know, ACTG, it, it has different patterns that they can connect and not connect. They're going to attract or, or repel one another, for example. Or you can think about polarity and magnets. You could think about Velcro that has, you know, sort of positive and negative or male and female connections. Uh, surface tension has something similar. Like 
different ways for materials to have some patterned connection. So you think about, you design whatever it is, the chair, the some type of mechanism, or there's some type of structure or product. You break it down into components. How do those components come together? How do I pattern the interaction? So the right ones connect with the right ones and the, you know, the wrong ones don't connect. Then you need some, some amount of energy. Uh, so often, you know, we're putting things underwater and adding, you know, flow and current forces, or we're using wind or we're tumbling or shaking, you know, you need some type of activation energy. We're really interested in using abundant natural, uh, sources of energy like wind and waves and, you know, vibration, et cetera. But you can use all sorts of energy sources in order to activate these things. Um, and then kind of one last ingredient is that you want to build in some form of error correction. So what happens, you know, the Lego example, like throw a bunch of Legos in a washing machine. And, and by the way, there's a really fascinating research paper where researchers literally did that. <laughs> and they did a whole taxonomy of like what shapes come out of that. Um, I wouldn't recommend anyone try that. You might ruin your yeah. washing machine, but it's really interesting. So, you know, the, there is a pattern of how these mechanisms come together, but there's really no error correction that can guide certain structures to assemble and, and stop other ones. So you need to think about ways that that can happen. Um, and you can build that into the mechanisms or the patterns of how this comes together uh, or the geometry. There, there's different principles of how you can design for error correction, but you know, it shouldn't just be that any random thing you know, come emerges, you want certain things to emerge and you want other things not to emerge. And so we, we design around all of those principles, trying to guide certain structures to emerge with the right environment, you know, but we're also interested in the potential for that process to show us things that we couldn't have predicted. So there's one example where we, we had this really big fan, I think it was like a meter diameter fan and we had a chamber above it, almost like a lottery tumbling machine. And we had these particles flying around in this chamber and they would connect and then they would fly down or they would kind of land to the ground and break. And then they would connect and break again, like very much like a, a lottery tumbler machine. Um, but then eventually different structures started to connect that were really good at flying. They would just hover. And so this, this fitness criteria evolved to show that they could fly. We didn't like design them to try to make them fly. That's we cool. didn't uh, tell them how to fly, but they started to connect. And because they were able to hover, then they quote unquote succeeded and they were able to then continue to fly and they didn't break. All the rest of them kept falling, breaking, connecting, breaking, connecting, breaking until one started to hover. And so to me, that's really interesting because not only did it self-assemble and build from the bottom up, but it also was able to point towards like design emerging, functionality emerging in the system that we didn't predetermine. So it could tell us what might be, you know, an optimal flying structure without us having to design that, you know, in the beginning. Yeah, we see this kind of designed from the bottom up in spades in nature. Evolution figured it out a long time ago. And you've reminded me of something I think I learned in college biology about cell division. Mm -hmm. Cells not only have 
many error correcting mechanisms, but they have several mechanisms by which if things don't go right, they kill themselves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They just stop. (laughs) And every one of your cells has those mechanisms built into it. (laughs) Yeah. And I think there's also, I mean, I'm definitely no expert in the biology space, but you know, a lot of these principles that we're talking about, they transfer across many different disciplines. So you'll see self-assembly in a lot of different scales and a lot of different domains. And biology is one of the main ones. But I, I think also cells, you know, have counters and they have so many times that they can divide and, and replicate. Yeah. And that's what leads to, you know, lifespans. Yeah. And that's, you know, why different species have different lifespans. And so, you know, it's interesting in that space. And, you know, anecdotally, if you remove that, I, I think there was researchers that were trying to design, figure out how that mechanism works. But if you remove that, that ends up being cancer, that the cells can continuously huh. grow and divide, grow and divide, you know, over that's right. and over. That's again. very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So let's move on. What do you mean by, I found this fascinating. Uh, what do you mean by design as adaptation? Yeah. So, um, Typically, you know, we think about design as I want to make this product for this application. Um, But, you know, in the software space, you're seeing in, you know, the past decade or so, um, you first people ship and then they'll make updates and they'll, you know, make updates as they learn and then they keep updating the software and keep revising it. It's a little bit harder to do that in hardware so you make some machine or you make some you know component or whatever it's hard to update that thing over time and it's hard to foresee all possible scenarios of where that will be used and how you know it may fail Um, so what we typically do in an engineering space like let's say you're designing a bridge is you'll over engineer it so it's way stronger than it needs to be. And you have all these safety factors that are really important so that, you know, bridges don't collapse and people don't get hurt. Um, but we use lots more material and over-engineer the structure to be super, super rigid uh, and constrained so that it doesn't fail because you can't predict all possible scenarios. And so there's a really interesting space to me that is about how do we design systems like the the one I was just talking about where it evolved the function of flying um, or in the 4D example where you design objects that can then morph and transform. Can we have a design process where we design something that can adapt and transform over time? So as the function changes, it also can adapt uh, and the design functionality emerges through the relationship with the environment or through the relationship with the user. Uh, so maybe the bridge grows stronger where it needs to go stronger, or maybe more flexible where it needs to grow flexible, or your shoes get more comfortable because they start to learn how you use them, how you walk or how you run, where you need more cushion, where you need more support. You know, we have products that can adapt to how they're being used and be the best versions of the, of themselves. It's not that all products are the same and it's not, they're, they're going to be static and disregard how you use them, but they actually adapt to the situation and get better over time. The chair that I am sitting in, which I have had for decades, 
was over-engineered and was designed not to fail, at least fail catastrophically in such a way that it would kill me. <laughs> but I can tell you, it's become really comfortable. It's like, it now is my chair. It like fits me really well. <laughs> um, so that was kind of an accidental design as adaptation. Um, There's a bunch of examples like that, you know, like a well-worn pair of jeans or uh, a leather baseball glove or a hat or, you know, shoes. There are many examples where almost accidentally these products can adapt to how they're being used. Um, And so those are really fascinating examples for us. And then we want to basically amplify that to really design in that feature so that our products adapt to us. Yeah, this next question uh, will also be of interest to the people at IKEA. Can you talk a little bit about self-repair? Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of researchers um, in looking at many different material systems and trying to build in the functionality of self-repair. If, you know, if you get a cut, your skin will repair itself. Or there's many species that you know, if the tail gets cut off, it'll then regrow. Um, And so that self-repairing mechanism we see often in the biological living world. Um, And sometimes there's really interesting examples of how that can happen in materials, um, you know, non-biological materials. There's researchers looking at self-repairing concrete, for example, or uh, different polymers and composites uh, like carbon fiber and Kevlar and fiberglass and you know, metals and, you know, many different materials that often, Mm -hmm. if they have some failure point, they just get worse and worse and worse. And sometimes it'll be a catastrophic failure. And sometimes it'll be more like ductile and it'll bend. Um, But now sort of at the cutting edge of this research, people are looking at how do we design these materials so that if there is some crack or some impact or some failure moment, it can actually repair that and potentially even get stronger than it was before. And there's a bunch of different motifs on, on how that could happen. Um, you know, where you crack something and then it releases something else or oxygen hits something and catalyzes the material, uh, or you can do it like structurally or geometrically where you have different, um, geometries that when one thing, uh, opens up, it then fills a void of another thing. So there's a lot of really interesting research coming out, about materials that can repair themselves, much like you know humans or or many living living systems repair themselves. I'm kind of into airplanes, and I always have been. And there's a thing. There's a, the, the technology of the self sealing gas tank or mm-hmm. fuel tank. I don't understand how that works. I'm not going to ask you to explain it, but <laughs> this idea has been around for a long time. So if a gas tank is punctured, it somehow heals itself. I I, I have no idea how that works. Um, but it's a good example of self-repair. Yeah. Um, in near the end of the book, you write this sentence. Today, we have the opportunity to rewrite our relationship with the physical world so that we are no longer passive observers, but active collaborators. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I, I'm really interested in true collaboration. So like, you know, if you and I collaborate on something, The goal is that the other person brings something to the table that you couldn't do or wouldn't have thought of, uh, or you have complementary skills and you collectively do something better than one, one person could do. You know, that's like the ideal collaboration. And when we look at our 
uh, physical environment around us, whether that's the built environment or the natural environment, or it's the products that we design, it's very much the opposite of that. It's almost like materials are our slaves. And we say, okay, brick, go here because I told you what to do. You know? Or like whatever the material is in a factory, it's like, I told you to be here, you're gonna be here, and I'm gonna rivet you together so you stay there. You know, like there's no collaboration with the material medium. It's forcing stuff into place. We're not actually listening to what those materials want to do. We're not collaboratively designing a better structure together, like I was kind of hinting at at the flying structures. And in our environment, you know, that's maybe the worst example. We're definitely not collaborating with our natural environment or more or less just destroying it. So in all of those cases, I would be much more interested in like a true collaboration where we we think about, okay, I'm going to use wood. Like in the example you, you talked about earlier, what can this wood do? What is the wood really good at? It's good at sensing and responding to moisture. You know, it's good at carrying load in a certain orientation and really collaboratively trying to design around the material properties and then design around the environment with which it's going to be used. So if you look at like Japanese joinery or you look at shipbuilding or or um, like alcohol barrels, for example, you know, historically with master craftspeople, they would utilize the swelling nature of wood to make extremely precise, extremely strong and watertight structures by collaborating with the material properties of wood and understanding the environment with which it's going to be used. To me, that's a really awesome collaboration. And we've sort of lost that. And I think there's this lineage from like the craft age to the industrial revolution. When we started mass producing, you know, you saw the the woodworker kind of go away and we started making standard two by fours. And we, we ignored the grain and the beauty and like anisotropic properties of this wood. We stopped listening to it and we said, wood, you're going to act like metal or plastic. And if you're not, we're going to throw you out and say you have too many dots <laughs> and you're bad. You know, we, we stopped collaborating and listening to the material. We don't really care what environment we're going to use all the same two by fours and lumber and, you know, any place in the country or in the world. And so it's not really a collaborative environment. And so we're very much interested in trying to rebuild that collaboration, listen and collaboratively design structures that, you know, wouldn't be possible if, if you weren't tuned into those properties of the material or the environment. The two by four, of course, is no longer two by four. <laughs> <laughs> so not only don't we pay enough attention to it, we have it badly named. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to end the interview, well, almost ending the interview, we're about out of time, with what is kind of a philosophical question that occurred to me while I was reading your book. And uh, as far as I know, people in the West, at least, have always made a very strong distinction between organic things and inorganic things. Humans are organic things and rocks are inorganic. This is like the strongest possible distinction that we have. A rock is not a human. They are entirely different. But it seems to me what you're saying in this book really blurs the line between organic and inorganic. Yep. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm very interested in that. I actually taught a design studio a number of years ago uh, that we called the Origins of Life. And the premise was that if you 
if you ask anyone what, like, what is life, there's all these characteristics that they'll describe, like self-replication or self-assembly or metabolism, growth, evolution, intelligence, like you name it. There's these characterizations that we say like, okay, you know, these things make up life. And if you go in every single one of those categories, they have been demonstrated in both biological systems as well as computational systems like algorithmic and in many cases, uh, you know, simple material examples that are inorganic, that are, you know, non-biological materials that have that same property. And so the question is, if you put all those together, would we call it life? And, and I doubt it. You know, I think that basically it's, we just move the goalpost all the time. And we basically, unless it looks like us or looks like something that we understand as living, we don't call it living. Um, and so there's really fascinating examples from like uh, biological self-replication to robotic self-replication to Lionel Penrose did this amazing example, I think in the fifties with these like wooden blocks that self-replicate and, and it's just fascinating, like just fundamental, like simple wooden blocks that can replicate. Um, and in every one of those categories, there's lots of examples like that, that I really, really love that these behaviors are able to be demonstrated computationally, biologically, and through materials. Um, and so that to me points to the perspective that these are not just what we call living today. These are not just in like biological organic materials. These are fundamental principles that can be demonstrated in many different things. And so that could shift our notion of, of what we mean when we say something is living or what we mean when we say something is intelligent, we can actually expand that definition. And, you know, maybe that's useful in our quest for life on other planets. For example, we might be able to broaden our definition of yeah, what we mean because it might not be like this carbon based, you know, life form that we know of and might not have a lot of the, the same, um, kind of attributes. Uh, but I think that it's not, to me, it's not really about like the quest for life. It's more just like the quest to activate matter and the quest to tap into all of this ca these capabilities. Like, can we make intelligent material systems? You know, all of us, our intelligence is built out of materials, like soft, squishy materials. It's not built out of electronics. It's not built out of computers or robots. We're built out of matter. And um, I think there's a lot of really fascinating examples where that could happen in both organic and inorganic systems to kind of push the behaviors forward and, and lead to that collaboration that I was talking about, you know, lead to a smarter environment, a smarter world. That's not just like we're smart, everything else is dumb, you know, but that we could see the intelligence in both organic or inorganic systems. Yeah. What you've just said has massive implications. <laughs> That's a lot of weight to carry. Um, <laughs> let me ask the traditional final question on the New Books Network. What are you working on now? A bunch of different research projects at the moment, but maybe one of the biggest, um, biggest both in scale and in um, applications is a project in the Maldives. We have collaborators there looking at um, 
how to grow islands using wave energy. And so, you know, this gets back to your question of organic versus inorganic. And, you know, islands are, depending on where they're at, they're, you know, often made out of things like sand or made out of things like rock or, you know, volcanic structures. Um, and these things self-organize, you know, islands emerge on their own, sandbars grow and evolve and shift and change. Uh, and the question is, how does that happen? Like, how do islands emerge? How do sandbars form? Why do, why do coastlines erode? You know, there's whole disciplines of people just studying this. Um, and we became really fascinated in it because it's a very, very clear example of self-organization, similar to what we've seen, but at the largest of scales, like literally making land <laughs> that self-organized. No one's, you know, out there like sculpting this. Although there is this whole space of dredging, any any coastal area or island nation often will use dredging where they basically suck up sand and then pump it back to the beach. And we're trying to oppose that. That becomes essentially an addiction and a Band-Aid doesn't actually solve the problem and costs lots of money and it's really harmful for the environment. So the question was, could we tap into that natural ability to self-organize and try to guide and promote the accumulation of sand in useful areas. Could you rebuild beaches naturally uh, by using wave energy to grow rather than erode? Or could you grow new islands doing the same thing? Could you use this as a tool to overcome sea level rise perhaps? And so, you know, that's a really fascinating one and, and widely applicable. Obviously there's lots of coastal regions around the world and island nations, and they're all facing erosion and sea level rise challenges in the future. And so, you know, coming up with some new perspective on how we could do this in collaboration with the massive forces in our environment, like wind waves and tsunamis and storms and currents, you know, we're trying to tap into that to build rather than destroy. And you probably get to go to the Maldives. <laughs> exactly. Do you? <laughs> yeah, we've been there a couple of times and hoping to go back in the fall. We have a National Geographic grant around this to do research there. So, you know, it's not the worst place to work. Yeah, no, that's good. All right. Uh, let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Skylar Tibbetts about his terrific book, Things Fall Together, a guide to the new materials revolution out from Princeton University Press in 2021. Skyder, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me.